straight in to 2 Corinthians chapter 6. So if you've got a Bible and you'd like to join with me in reading uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 6, we're going to read the first 13 verses together this morning. Here's Paul writing. He says, as God's fellow workers, we urge you not to receive God's grace in vain. For he says, in the time of my favor, I have heard you. And in the day of salvation, I have helped you. I tell you, now is the time of God's favor. Now is the day of salvation. We put no stumbling block in anyone's path so that our ministry would not be discredited. Rather, as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way, in great endurance, in troubles, hardships, and distresses, in beatings and imprisonments and riots, in hard work, sleepless nights, and hunger, in purity, understanding, patience, and kindness, in the Holy Spirit and in sincere love, in truthful speech and in the power of God, with weapons of righteousness in the right hand and in the left, through glory and dishonor, bad report and good report, genuine yet regarded as impostors, known yet regarded as unknown, dying and yet we live on, beaten and yet not killed, sorrowful yet always rejoicing, poor yet making many rich, having nothing and yet possessing everything. We have spoken freely to you, Corinthians, and have opened wide our hearts to you. We are not withholding our affection from you, but you are withholding yours from us. As a fair exchange, I speak as to my children, open wide your hearts also. I my sermon, well, I suppose my sermon does have a title. The title of my sermon this morning would simply be this, um, Productive Grace. See, Paul starts this passage by, by speaking about a grace that is in vain. And then he moves on to that long list of, of all hardships and sufferings and joy and happiness and, and the paradoxes, um, the, those comparisons that he gives at the end. And I think those things all give us some insight into the very opposite of grace that is in vain. Those things give us insight into what productive grace looks like. And then he ends with that whole thing of open your hearts to us. So three points to my sermon this morning. Pointless grace, productive grace, and open hearts. So Paul's opening warning in this passage is that we do not receive the grace of God in vain. Just last week, we saw God's appeal to us, to the people, to be reconciled. God's, God's appeal through Paul was be reconciled, come in. And so God offers this free grace to all who would come. But how sad it would be to receive grace, but to receive it in vain. And what does that even mean? I think what it means, I think what Paul is referring to here is that, that it's possible for us to receive the grace of Christ, but for that grace to have little effect on our lives. That's not about whether or not you can lose your salvation. That's a whole other debate. It's about receiving the grace of Jesus, but that finding with time, his grace seems to make little or no impact on the way we live, on how we believe, on how we behave. 
And how sad it is sometimes to see people in churches all over the world who week after week are in attendance, who, who are watching online multiple services around the world at the moment, who, who hear of the grace of God, who even respond to the grace of God in some way, who heard the call to be reconciled, who have drawn near, and yet over time, the grace of God has not softened hearts. The grace of God has not changed the outlook in life. To find that our opinion of current events continues to be informed and shaped by social media and not by grace and graciousness. I wonder how many in churches around the world, I wonder how many even in our church, may receive the grace of God in vain. There are those who have been forgiven much, but can find no room in their heart to forgive others. There are those for whom much has been sacrificed, but who themselves are unwilling to sacrifice anything. Those who were once spiritually impoverished and yet are unwilling to act generously to those in need. Those who were once exiled and despised and set apart and, and, and cut, cut off from God and now have been brought near and yet themselves continue to despise, and to hold others in exile. Those who have encountered grace and yet prefer self-righteous acts of religiosity, receiving grace in vain. And Paul's appeal is this. His appeal is, don't spurn grace. And he quotes from Isaiah 49 to drive the point home. Isaiah 49, and you need to go and read it later today. It'll be good for your soul to read Isaiah 49. Isaiah 49 is about the servant of the Lord, in whose mouth is a sharpened sword. So we kind of know who it's about. And, and Isaiah 49 makes promises related to God's covenant. The covenant is that I will be their God, they will be my people. And Isaiah 49 is just overflowing with promises like this, I will restore them. I will set them free. I will bring them out of darkness. I will feed them when they're hungry. It, it has, in the midst of that song, this wonderful promise where God says, see, I have engraved you in the palm of my hands. And that engraving done by cruel nails. Isaiah 49 says, I will not forgive you. Sorry, I will not forget you, even though you may forget me. If you're at all interested, you can go onto our church website and dig back a, a couple of years to, to find my sermon that I preached on Isaiah 49 and re-listen to the promises and the covenant of God in that passage. And it's this grace that's on offer. And Paul says to the people here in, in Corinth, don't turn your back on this. Paul says to us this morning, don't Turn your back on this promise of grace. Don't turn your back on this wonderful covenant that God lays out for us. Don't receive this wonderful grace in vain. Don't receive this wonderful grace and then believe that you can move on to bigger and better and more important things. Well, that you can somehow add something to this grace that will make this grace even more spectacular than it currently is. Simply can't be done. And then Paul talks about the day of salvation, the time of salvation. 
there's an old song that, that gets sung. Uh, we sing it at Hillcrest Hospital quite often. Um, you'll have sung it back in the 19, goodness knows when, 1960s. This is the day, this is the day that the Lord has made. Remember that song? And that song is not singing about, yay, it's Sunday. God has made Sunday. We should rejoice in Sunday. That song is directly referencing this passage here. It's referencing the day of salvation. That's what the day that we're rejoicing in. That's the day that God has made. And the day of salvation, Paul says, uh, as much as Paul says this time is now, it really is a reference to the day in which Christ came and died for us. Don't receive his grace in vain. So what then would be the opposite of receiving grace in vain? Well, I, I, I googled what is the antonym for in vain, and, and the opposite or the antonym of in vain is productive or useful. So, so here's where I want to spend the next bit of our sermon this morning. Is just So what does productive grace look like? If grace in vain is, is, is receiving God's grace but not making any changes to our lives at all, what does productive grace look like? And I think that's the bulk of what Paul speaks about in this passage when he starts speaking about um, the hardships and the sufferings, and then he talks about the love and the peace and the joy, and then he talks about the um, uh, having nothing yet possessing everything. Different translations of the Bible, different English translations of the Bible have, have done different things with the punctuation in this passage. And they do that because the Greek language doesn't bother much with punctuation. So I think the English Standard Version helps us the best because it uses less semicolons. And in the English, in English Standard Version, it divides this passage really into three sections. And I think that's helpful for us in understanding what productive grace looks like. It divides it into the section where Paul speaks about suffering and hardship. And then where Paul talks about the issue of, of Christian grace and character. And then finally, the paradoxes of Christian ministry. So that's really what I want us to say to see this morning. That productive grace endures suffering. That productive grace produces Christian character. And then thirdly, productive grace leads us to embrace the paradox of Christian life. So where Paul starts with this bit is he starts off by saying we haven't put a roadblock in the way for anyone to receive God's grace. There is no stumbling block. There's nothing to stop you from receiving uh, God's grace. And then Paul says, here is my commendation. This is my CV. This is my testimonial of ministry. This is how you know that I'm for real. And he goes in to say, productive grace endures suffering. If grace is evident and at work in your life, you will endure. Now, of course, that is so contrary to much of, so much of what modern Western Christianity offers. In fact, many people would say, Paul, this is a major roadblock. You've just said you're not putting any roadblocks in the way, but this is a major stumbling block. Surely uh, you, you don't want to present grace to someone as enduring suffering. Surely we want to emphasize the absence of suffering. When you say, come to Jesus, you will suffer, that's a major stumbling block. In our modern world, one of the most important things for the individual is that the individual escapes suffering. I'm grateful for modern medication. I'm so glad that I can go and get a Panado for the teensiest little headache that I might possibly have because life is aimed at avoiding hardships. But it's unrealistic. We can never completely get away from suffering. 
And so Paul says, here's my CV. And he lists all these dreadful things. Sleepless nights, distress, beatings, imprisonments. Is this the kind of guy that you want to be the pastor of your church? Hi, I've just got out of jail. That's not usually the sort of thing that you're looking for in, a, in an apostle and a pastor. He, he says, riots. We've seen some riots in the world recently. Well, Paul says, I start riots. Hunger, hard work. It doesn't sound like much fun, does it? The point is that God-given productive grace does not absolve us from these things. But rather, that his grace is sufficient for these things. And I know that many of you are suffering right now. That many of you are dealing with, with health issues. That a number of you are struggling with economic issues. Some of you are struggling with psychological issues at the moment. The fact that you've not been able to see anyone, see your family, whatever, for the last eight weeks, nine weeks now, is, is causing great stress on you. Grace that is not given in vain gives great endurance in suffering and hardship. It's why I interviewed Vuyo this morning. For us to see some of his hardship and for us to see that the grace of God is not in vain in his life. I wanted us to get a little bit of perspective too on our, our first world troubles. I mean, <laughs> no fiber in his home. For some of you, that's shocking. For some of you, that was the worst part of the interview. How can he possibly survive without fiber in his home? For some of you, fiber is one of the five basic needs of humankind, right? Food, water, shelter, clothing, and fiber. And some of you are of a certain age are going, fiber? Why does he want fiber? If he wants fiber, I'll buy him some full brand and music this week. I'm even going there. But did you catch some of the some of the hardships, some of the difficulty that he faces? Waiting for an ambulance that doesn't come. Living on the streets of Joburg, hungry, with no food, because there's nowhere else to go. Facing, coming face to face with war in your face. Racism, defined by who you are based on the color of your skin, escorted out of here because you just don't look like you fit. And I, I really did mean what I said to him when I said that in all of this, he continues to appear so calm and at peace. And my question to him was, why? And I think we get it. It's because the grace of God is at work in his life. And it's producing endurance in the face of suffering. I say it often enough, even though I don't want to say it, but that we are called to patient endurance. And no one wants that. And yet it's what Paul says. He says this is the mark of faithful and fruitful and even successful Christian ministry. Here is the true fruit of productive grace. Patient endurance here's what grace produces in us endurance so here's paul presenting his cv to the church of corinth and saying can the super apostles that you're suddenly chasing after in their comfort and in their easy no conflict life can they match this listen some of you have received the grace of God. It's evident. 
but some of you are beginning to doubt. You're beginning to wonder. You're beginning to wonder if God and his grace is sufficient. You're on the verge of giving up and throwing the towel in and saying, no more. But you need to hear the words of scripture this morning. Don't let all of this be in vain. Endure. Hold on to grace. Even in the midst of your current hardship, hold on. In the failing marriage, in the messed up family life, in the disastrous job, in the collapsed friendship, in that ongoing struggle with addiction, don't give up. Don't give in. Let grace be at work in you. Patiently endure to the end. Secondly, productive grace forms Christian character. You see how in verse 6, Paul turns from the hardship issues to the issues of character, where he begins to speak of purity and patience and kindness and love and truth. Can you spot the, the connection there between, between that and, and the a list that Paul gives in Galatians chapter 5? In Galatians 5, Paul speaks about the fruit of the Spirit. And can you see the similarities? Paul, in this passage, this is five out of those eight fruit that he talks about in Galatians 5. He talks here about the work of the Holy Spirit. The point is this. If we have received grace, then it should be evident in changed character. Grace should make us more loving, not less. Grace should make us more truthful and delighting in the truth, not less. That's one reason why we don't send around fake news. Even if the fake news is a call to prayer, please don't send another one of those messages. Pray for the, for the people in India and the northern provinces because they're all dying. It's not true. It hasn't been true for five years. Stop sending it around. And I know some people say, well, at least it's calling us to pray. But we're people of truth, not manipulation. Grace should make us kinder and nicer than we were. And so it comes as a bit of an anomaly when we find that sometimes people in the church are harsh and critical and mean and impatient and unkind and, and thoughtless and impure and bigoted. Grace must change us. And if it doesn't, perhaps we've misunderstood what grace is. See, what is it that shapes character? What is it that shapes behavior and belief? There, there are a whole host of things. We are, to some extent, shaped by our DNA. So you can blame your parents for that. We are, to some extent, shaped by our education. So you can blame your teachers for that. We are shaped by what we read. You can blame yourself for that. We're shaped by our culture. We're, we're shaped by our societal norms. And sadly, for many Christians, that's as far as it goes. And we seem to allow ourselves to become putty in the hands of our society. But the constant call of the gospel is this call that we be different, that we be shaped and molded and remolded by something else. We're to be molded by the gospel of God's grace. Why does his grace make us more loving? 
Because when we rightly understand grace, then we know this. He loved us while we were unlovable. And, and when, we, when that concept takes proper root in our hearts, how can we then not love the unlovable? Because we see in the unlovable a mirror in which we see a reflection of ourselves. See, it goes wrong for us when we misunderstand God's grace and we believe that somehow, in some way, and to some measure, I'm deserving. I've earned this right. God saved me because there is a little bit of lovableness in me. And when we have that concept, it's no wonder that we are less loving to those around us. They must earn my love in the same way that I earned God's love. Why does grace make us kind? Because it was the kindness and mercy of God that drew us to repentance. And when we see that we are the recipients of God's great hand out and hand up, receiving kindness from him, even though we were enemies, well, when we see others who are undeserving, and when we see those who are enemies, when we see those who are different from us racially, ethically or ethnically, religiously and culturally, we, we see then in them a mirror of ourselves. And we're reminded of the kindness of God toward us. God wasn't kind to us because we repented. God was kind to us and then we repented. And so we show kindness not because someone asks it of us, but regardless of whether they ask it or not. The grace of God prompts us to demonstrate kindness to those who don't deserve kindness. Why does the grace of God make us patient? Because God was patient with us. Even though we were stubborn and defiant and rebellious. And when you think that you weren't stubborn and weren't rebellious, and then God was just nice and grandfatherly and patted you on the head, well, then that will lead you to be impatient with others. But when you see in the stubborn and in the violent and in the rebellious a mirror of yourselves, well then instead of being quick to condemn, you become quick to listen. And so you see, productive grace changes us. Grace in vain leaves us as we are. Grace in vain leaves us in our self-righteousness. Grace in vain leaves us saying, I earned this, and therefore you need to earn it from me. Grace in vain leaves me with an attitude of superiority, of I'm better than you. Grace in vain leaves us bigoted and whatever. And true grace leaves no room for that. And you and I need to examine our hearts today. We need to ask, what has grace produced in us? He has given you great grace. But have you received it in vain? Have you received it on, uh, and thought that on some level you've deserved it? On some level thinking that you've somehow earned this? Have you bought into the lie that you may once upon a time have been undeserving, but you've served God so faithfully for the last 20 years that now God owes you? Because as soon as that kind of thinking settles into you somewhere, it will change your character. It will make you less loving. 
It will make you less understanding. It will make you less patient and less holy. It leaves you less gracious to others. Grace changes us. So, so Paul Tripp says this. He says we need to live in this. A, day, a, a humble admission of my daily need for Christ and a humble pursuit of his grace because such grace changes us. Productive grace leads to reformed character. The third practice of, of, of active grace is seen in Paul's long list of paradoxes, the, the paradox of the Christian life. So do you know what a paradox is? When I was uh, late teens, the, the popular thing at the time was to wear Doc Martin shoes. They were the coolest things ever. Everyone wanted a pair of Doc Martin shoes. And of course, you, you didn't call them Doc Martin, you called them Docs. And so anyone who was cool had a paradox. Paradox, you get it? I know you're not laughing because it's just not funny. A paradox is a seeming contradiction that on closer examination, displays that it's actually not contradictory at all. And the Christian life is a life of paradox. And productive grace allows us to live in the paradox. And so Paul lays out these contradictions. There's about nine of them in this passage. These, these uh, pairs of contradictions right through. And, and he says that uh, we're able to live with the paradox. He talks about being genuine, though, though they think of us as false, being known and yet considered unknown, dying and yet living, sorrowful but rejoicing. Don't have time to go through all of them this morning, but let me highlight just a couple of them. He says, we're known yet unknown. Was Paul famous? Not really. Only in a very small and select circle was he well known. He was, he was well known and famous, I suppose, in the early church. But he wasn't famous like a Greek athlete is famous or, or famous like one of the Greek philosophers of the day were famous. He was relatively unknown. And that was used against him. The people in Corinth were saying, Paul, you're an unknown uh, uh, entity. You're not a celebrity. And yet Paul is happy. He is content with his obscurity. And consider, contrast that with the rise of the celebrity pastor today. Remember how Jesus uh, once said, uh, you know, someone will appear before the judgment seat one day and will come and say, Lord, I perform miracles in your name and I cast out demons and I preach to thousands. And Jesus says, I never knew you. How sad it would be to be well known and world famous, to be known everywhere, to have your name on the lips of world leaders. And yet hear Jesus say, I have no idea who you are. Most of us are completely unknown. In the wider world, we hardly make a blip on the international radar. Our little church is pretty insignificant in the city of Durban. I don't know if you know this, but uh, our church and I wasn't invited to make representation to the president on behalf of our church a couple of weeks ago when he was wondering what to do about churches in the country. He didn't ask my opinion. Who knew, right? We're not well known. And yet we are known. We are known by God. And the joy is this, not that I know Jesus, but that Jesus knows me. You may be somewhat insignificant. And you may feel that this morning. But you are known by the God of the universe. Productive grace sees that. 
dying, yet we live. Paul was dying by inches. We're all dying little bit by little bit every day. We're one step closer to death. We're all dying. And yet, because of the grace of the gospel, life resides in us. And so Paul is able to say, we live even though we die. Hear the words of Jesus, right? Where he says, this is life that they may know you and the one that you have sent. But dying, we live. Sorrowful, yet rejoicing. Paul has listed all the reasons that we have for sorrow, right? Loss and pain and heartache. There's so many reasons for our sadness. And grace teaches us in the midst of sadness and sorrow to rejoice in a deeper hope. We live in a sinful and painful world. We sorrow at the sins of others. We sorrow at the pains that others face and of ourselves. And yet, there is a song in our hearts because of all that Christ has done for us. And so grace teaches us to see the deeper joy behind the sorrow and sees there the hope for tomorrow. Poor, yet making many rich. Paul was being judged for not being able to turn his ministry into a thriving, growing business. But Paul says, I might be impoverished, but I've been the agent of distributing spiritual wealth beyond imagining to many, having nothing yet possessing everything. Ah, the, how the prosperity gospel guys mangled this. I remember being told um, as a teenager that, that though I possess nothing now, I must speak words of faith and my possessions will multiply and I will possess all that I can imagine. It's just not what Paul is saying. What he's saying is, I might not have a house, I might not have a fancy car, I don't have a wardrobe full of designer clothes, I might, might not have treasures, I might not have a handsome stock portfolio. But Paul says this, I have Christ. He is the pearl of great price. He is worth losing all in order to gain him. I may have nothing, but I have everything that I need in him. And productive grace teaches us to live in this paradox, that the way up is the way down, that the way of life is the path of the cross, that the way to great gain is sacrifice. And it makes no sense in the absence of grace. But in the presence of grace, we live in this paradox. We have Christ, and here's another. Pointless grace, productive grace, and finally this morning, open hearts. And Paul simply says this, I've bared my all to you. I have opened my heart. You've seen my affection for you. Please don't close your heart to me. Don't close your heart to this message. Don't close your heart to this grace. Don't close your heart to Jesus. So I'm going to stretch it a little bit this morning. I know that Paul is speaking specifically to this church. This church has redirected their attention and affection from Paul and the gospel of grace to this group of super apostles and their message of pain-free success. And Paul's appeal here is simply an outpouring of affection to this church and appeal for them to return this affection. But I want to say to you and I this morning that, that there is more than that at stake here. There is an affection that Paul is appealing to for this message of grace. How easy it is for you and I to be enticed by a graceless gospel, 
a message that says, you're worth it. You deserve it. God owes you. Be all you can be. It gives a sense of, I can do something for this. And we love that. We want to contribute in some way. So many people want to come to church and hear the pastor say, do the following things. They want the pastor to give them another heavy stone to put in their backpack to say, yes, I can bear this. I'll do it. And Paul is saying, no, this is, this is a better message than that. Don't close your, close your heart to the message of the gospel of God's grace. See, when we buy into a, a, a graceless gospel, as strangely appealing as it may seem, when we buy into it, our affections move from our Savior to ourselves. So I say with Paul today, open your hearts to this gospel of grace. Receive God's grace, but don't receive his grace in vain. Receive God's grace and let his grace transform you. Let his grace propel you from being self-righteous and bigoted and indulgent and self-satisfied, society-formed people. Let his grace transform you into graceful, gracious, gospel-loving people of God. Open your hearts to him. Let your affection for Jesus flow as you see his deep affection for you. So open wide your hearts today. Do not receive the grace of God in vain. Let's pray. And so, Lord Jesus, this morning, as we have gathered around your word, may we find that this word sustains us. May we not be among those who receive your grace in vain. But we, may we receive your grace with great joy and may it produce a transforming power in our lives. May we find that your grace gives us endurance to endure suffering and hardship. May we find that your grace is sufficient in all things. May we find, Lord Jesus, that our character is shaped by your gospel and your grace and not by the world around us. May your grace transform us. As we reflect on your great love for us, even while we were unlovable, may that cause us to see ourselves reflected in those who are unlovable. And may we then respond as you have responded to us. When we consider your great kindness to us, may we respond in kindness and with great patience to others. May we be quick to listen instead of quick to judge. May your great grace give us the ability, the wisdom to live in the paradox of the Christian life. That so often seems at odds with this world. Oh, Jesus, we open our hearts to you this morning. Thank you for your great affection for us. May we respond to you with hearts open wide this morning. Amen.
Enjoy your Sunday afternoon. We look forward to seeing you one day. God bless.